Hello and welcome to Kune Quest episode 273. I'm your host, Mike Fs, aka Wheels. And with me as always. Uh, colony ship for sale cheap. And almost back in school for the next semester, your man in Japan, Michael Baker, Gaiji Minokatari. It's yeah, my last day, freedom. Yeah. <laughs> Our schedule's about to get weird. Yeah. yeah. Especially since we've got sports day coming up, and I'm not sure exactly which days I have no classes. Ooh, so, um, so, um, well, depending on how junior high second year turns out, I may have a complete Thursday available at some point. That's the dream. We shall see. Oh, I shall see the schedule tomorrow morning, so I will let you know if anything shows up. Godspeed. Yeah, but but thank you for accommodating me with an, a day early because I actually have to be walking the halls for some assessment tests tomorrow. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah. And thus, if you are someone who was checking in on Wednesday, that's why there was nothing happening. Yes. <laughs> Well, I'm probably going to be streaming anyway, but it won't yeah, be. It, it won't, won't be, be this old. show. Mm-hmm. I, I hope we all appreciated the reference I made for my introduction. I didn't catch it actually. It's it's the worst love one marathon. Oh, the one that apparently uh, Jason Jones described as a grievous sin. <laughs> Uh, I did not play that far into the original marathon. There's mostly a two and three guy. Yeah, that level is mostly about uh, setting up platforms to allow you to platform. You may note that you don't actually have a jump button in the marathon. You do not. And yes, although I don't know that level, I have experience with the platforming. Can't no one can see me doing the air quotes in the in that series. <laughs> that is entirely a platforming level. Yeah, like you're just Ugh. having to you have to wander around what amounts to an obnoxious maze to eyeball whether you think you'll be able to move between platforms. It's uh, like I said, Jason Jones uh, described it as a grievous sin. Mm-hmm. That's fun. Uh, so, what have we been up to? What have we been playing? Well, be um, like beginning of last week, I finally just stopped Pokemon Sword. Mm-hmm. It was just it was like getting to the point where I re- was realizing exactly how unbalanced the creature layout, um, creature distribution is on this game's map. Um, mm-hmm. It's like okay, I have beaten. I've beaten the league champion. I've gotten like over 200 Pokemon. I have yet to see a Caterpie. <laughs> I got. Um, I found a wild Metapod like in the first half hour of the game, and I raised that up to a Butterfree for the first gym. I have, but I never bothered to breed it. So I have literally never seen a Caterpie in the game. It's just this blank spot on the Pokedex. <laughs> And the the helpful little thing where it tells you, oh, look here for this creature, look here for that creature, doesn't work if you have never seen the creature. Yeah. No, no sleep. No sleep, Ratha, no. My sister's already here harassing me. God damn it. That's gonna, that's gonna be a yeah. 
but yeah. But yeah, just, just running around that game in the post um, just makes it really obvious that it could have done better, much better with the wild areas. Just yeah. For making, making low-level or low-tier Pokemon more available at the start instead of just jamming everything in randomly. Um, so. I think on some level that was intentional, but I can see how I could change anything. And then, I mean, after you beat the League Champion, everything jumps to level 60 anyway, so I caught something, like a, one Dragon-type, where I had, ne I had not actually seen the first evolutionary form of it, and all I had to do was give it one rare candy, and it was suddenly the third evolutionary form of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, there's something completely unsatisfying about this exchange. Oh, um, so what you moving on to? Um, well, I forgot to mention a couple weekends ago, I was, um, I had, uh, some time in the apartment alone, so I hooked up the PlayStation 3 and was playing a game called Sword in the Darkness. Hmm. Which Why does is, it sound vaguely familiar? I have no idea why, because it's originally a PC Engine game. Uh, uh, probably just that, yeah. Well, I, I mentioned it in the chat, um, but, mm -hmm. on the Discord, but it... It's a lot like a, I mean, it was probably made at the same time as most of the Square, um, of the Squaresoft Super Nintendo library. Mm -hmm. So it plays a lot like one of those, but it's got this really interesting um, battle screen setup that uh, when I posted a picture of it, somebody thought it looked more like Suikoden's dual battles. So, um, which I've never played Suikoden, so I wouldn't know on that. But um, it's got a really good battle system. It's grindy as hell. Hmm. Oh, good thing it has a strong combat system. Yeah. Yeah. Gets tiring after a while. Yeah. But yeah, and some interesting narrative <laughs> items in it, like like there there was this one bit where it was a plot point that these. Guardian crystals over the ca over the um, cave of the dead dark dragon, whatever, were turning black, mm -hmm. and it was supposed. Yeah. To, and they were wondering, oh, is this a sign of corruption from the dragon's magic or something? And but from the way things were being described, and the fact that one character actually got mortally ill from touching a rock from that cave, mm -hmm. and had to be purged of the what it was. It was even specifically said it was not a poison; it was some sort of emanation that had to be purged. I'm like, mm -hmm. there's only one thing I know of that will turn rock, um, like clear rock crystal, pure black. <laughs> and that's alpha radiation. Yeah. That's light poison. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's called radiation poisoning for a reason. Yeah. It's like, but yeah, eventually I'm going to have a chance to get the PlayStation out again and finish that game and see just how far the, like, the doomsday dragon is actually a nuclear bomb thing actually goes. Mm -hmm. so. That's fun. Otherwise, it was very, very definitely mid-90s fantasy with some, <coughs> at least some, some visual re references to, um, somebody was a fan of Berserk and Bastard, all I can say. I can't imagine someone in the 90s being like that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it, it, so. Was, 
fun it was thing interesting. to spend time with, I'd imagine. Yeah. I mean, it was one of the games I went over a couple, like almost six years ago, just saying, okay, hold on to it or keep, um, throw it or sell it, hold on to it or sell it. And this is one of the ones that looked interesting enough to try at a later date. It turned out to be true. After that, um, Shovel Knight. <laughs> yes. Yes. I am currently on the last stage. I just uh, I just got the battle against everybody, literally everybody, um, last night, and I yeah, haven't the tried boss since. Yeah, I, I got through. I got past the first one and almost got the second one. Hmm. Oh. Yeah, that's a good game. Yeah. I wasn't about to use up any of my healing potions just yet because those things don't replenish from a save point. Mm -hmm. yeah. We're going to have to talk about a different uh, Kickstarter later. That's called foreshadowing. <laughs> yep. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, that's been my gaming thing recently. Hmm. That's good. I always like Shovel I never went back and played the other campaigns. I should do that someday. Yeah, um, and you, Wheels. Uh, so I don't remember if I talked last week at all about, maybe it happened the day after, I don't know. My brain is not functioning correctly. Uh, but all no. the recent Destiny news, and they... I think you only talked about that on last Sunday night, so... Okay, yeah, so... Uh, the best raid, arguably from uh, Destiny 1 came back and uh, in addition to a bunch of news about the next expansion that looks pretty cool hmm. um, as we're actually getting near the end of the 10 year story of Destiny which is makes me feel old <laughs> <laughs> oh trust me I remember <clears throat> when you were Retweeting the countdown days to when Destiny Two was going to launch. Yeah, I mean, not Destiny Two, Destiny One. Yeah, I mean, I was in from the first trailer, so yeah. I think I'll play Marathon instead. <laughs> you monster! But also, I would not you should play, play Marathon. <laughs> I would not actually play Marathon One because Marathon One is bad. Yeah, but I might play Marathon Two. Marathon Two is <laughs> very good, and we can actually. You can actually co-op that. Oh, you can do that on stream. That would be a terrible stream. Uh, but yeah. That's the cool stuff in Destiny. I've uh, been playing a lot of that and having fun. Uh, did one of the raids with my sister and some friends last night. It was a hell of a lot of fun. So, uh, yeah, as as we get near the end of this long story, there's probably going to be a lot of me playing Destiny the next two years with breaks when, you know, it's, it's still a seasonal game, so there'll still be, like, slowdowns and whatnot. But, I mean, uh, 2024, I will probably not be shutting the fuck up about Destiny for a while. So prepare yourselves in the future for that. <laughs> I'm preparing myself with rage. Yes. <laughs> uh, but also lots of Xenoblade, which you may have seen just got a review on RP Gamer. 
And Alex is now given the trilogy the trifecta. Oh. Five out of five for all three games. What about X? Yeah. <laughs> I think he gave that a four out four point five out of five. <laughs> and how times change, it used to be something like that would be inviting a flame war from GameFAX. <laughs> Good times. Maybe it still is. I don't know. Fuck game facts. Uh, I don't know. I mean, they, they haven't bothered with us in ages. That's true. So it's kind of sad almost. It's like, don't you guys care anymore, really? Yeah. It takes a lot to piss them off now because yeah. they're busy yelling at each other. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I don't have a lot of complaints about Zeta Blade 3 at this point. It's very good fixes a lot of things wow. I actually didn't like about the first two games. Which is good. Just has a ton of different classes and stuff to play around with. It's good fun. Hmm. Uh, I've also played a bit of Soul Hackers 2. Oh, yeah, uh, you should have a bit of that off. Yeah. Which I saw somebody saying... I saw a tweet of somebody saying... Uh, I forget who it was, so apologies for not giving full credit. Uh, they said, and they meant this in all the best way possible, that it felt like a 3DS era Atlas game. Oh, that's fun. And I can, I can kind of see that. It feels like, okay, is this... Is particularly wrong? Huh? Um, no, it's just... No, 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 no. It just feels like, okay, this doesn't have a giant bu budget, but it's got like a lot of heart, and uh, it's just very fun. Like the Atlas. Those tend, yeah. tend to be the better Atlas games. Yeah, no, it, it's so far it's it's pretty cool. Like right away, they're just like, oh, we have to go save this devil summoner. Like no, wasting our time trying to explain any of that. Just kind of right into it. Um, and the uh, the battle mechanics seem pretty neat. Um, uh, the characters are cool. The localization seems very good. It's uh, it's it's good, and plus I, I got the digital X Xbox version, which also gave me the game on PC, and it's cross safe. So though I can't, though there's no Switch version, I can actually still bring the game on the go with me, which is sweet. So good no stuff. Switch version yet? We're still waiting. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we see the version. Yeah, uh, it's it's good. I'll probably keep poking with that a bit um, as I go through Xenoblade. I'm sure this is going to be some point where I need a break from that. But uh, mostly going to be a lot of Xenoblade as far as RPGs go. It's, it's a lot of other um, <laughs> RPGs coming out. Like the the Turtles collection came out today, uh, Bayonetta, stuff like that. But uh, yeah, lots of Xenoblade coming up. So if you haven't heard enough about that game yet, prepare for more. Get ready. <laughs> Welcome to the Fantasy Zone. Get ready. So that's all you've been playing? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, can I talk about Pac-Man Pac World? Sure, sure. Okay. Sure. Uh, so, Pac-Man World Repack, which is a stupid title that I kind of love. 
uh, came out right last kind of week. Yes, it's the right kind of stupid, uh, which is a game. Not a budget price. I never played the original, but it looked fun, and it's Pac-Man, so whatever. Uh, Told you it was good. Man. Yeah, no, but you told me it was. I was probably going to wait a bit to. to I was probably going to wait till like the weekend to start playing it. But you told me when you were telling me about, it, I was like, "Oh fuck, I'm just going to start playing this the, that night, the night it came out." And uh, I'm glad I did because it's super fun, super polished little remake. Um, highly recommend it because it's only thirty fucking bucks. Yeah, uh, it's a really fun little 3D platformer. It's got like little maze mini games, just like the original game. Some of which are pretty funny. There's one where you find the entrance to the maze underwater. So he's Pac-Man's basically like swimming through the maze, which just looks weird. <laughs> I can't really describe it. But it just looks weird. But uh, no, it's it's really cool and colorful. And now I'm curious about. I'm gonna have to check out the uh, other Pac-Man World games at some point, for better or worse. I don't know if the sequels were any good. Uh, two is good. Uh, three has its moments, but different developer and was repurposed from a different project. Yeah. So it's got some messiness going on. And that's your Pac-Man World Minute. All right. Yeah. Also, right. Miss Pac-Man Maze Madness is a pretty fun style. What is this? Miss Pac-Man Maze Madness. What is like that? A, it's it's a spinoff uh, from around the same time. But uh. It was it wasn't a proper it wasn't a proper sequel. It was like or it wasn't a proper platformer. It was like a maze puzzle game. Weird. Yeah, it's good. I'm just getting flashbacks to the Pac-Man vinyl album. I got Pac-Man fever. Pac-Man no, fever. not that one. Oh god. Oh, I know. I know. Buckner and Garcia oh, wrote down a lot of things that weren't Pac-Man, like Berserk. I'm going Berserk. Would you like to go too? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, as for me, I played more. Uh, Trials in the Sky. Uh, got to final chapter of chapter one. So, still, still chugging along. As for uh, let's see, is there any other things that qualify as RPGs? I, because I played some other things. I was, I was messing around with the TMNT Cowpunk collection I got earlier today. Uh, that's a very nice collection, by the way. Uh, what else? Is there anything else that was an RPG that I was playing? I played some platformers and such. But I think my RPG time has mostly been Trails, so... Mm -hmm. That's where I mean, we there is a, that is a game that will suck up all your RPG time if you let it. Yeah, uh, there's still like ten more of them after this one. So <laughs> might die. Uh, yeah. But there is uh, RPG-related news that's been taking up my thoughts. Yay! Mm -hmm. Which is the Kickstarter for 
Armed Fantasia and Penny Blood. Which, for those who have somehow been interested in, uh, who, who are somehow in the RP Gamer audience, but have somehow not heard about this, which is a cross-section of maybe a third of a human being, uh, Armed Fantasia and Penny Blood is a Kickstarter for two different uh, B-tier JRPG uh, revivals. B-tier in terms of budget. Uh, JRPGs. I'm getting a slight echo. I'm not sure where that's coming from. Uh, but yeah, like... Why am I getting an echo? Sorry, it's, it's bothering me. Uh, I'm not sure. But... Arm Fantasia and Penny Blood are two uh, revivals of like mid-budget uh, RPGs from the late 90s and early aughts. Armed Fantasia is Wild Arms, and Penny Blood is Shadow Hearts. That's, that's basically the long and short of how, to, <laughs> how you would describe them. I mean, it's how they describe themselves. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, there's a, if you haven't bothered to watch it, there's a very funny uh, Kickstarter video of the like lead on Shadow Hearts and thus Penny Blood talking about uh, talking about making a game. He is wearing a ridiculous like fake mustache and beard and fake. I think his eyebrows are also fake. <laughs> uh, but uh, he is trying to determine what to do with his time. He spins a roulette wheel that contains things such as clean your room and get rich off NFT. <laughs> but it lands on it lands on make a JRPG. And so he he like talks about like okay I'm gonna sit down I'm gonna make uh, I'm gonna make a new Shadow Hearts kind of game called Penny Blood, and then we get uh, we get also Armed Fantasia and it, it, this is a very interesting like weird thing that they've done because this is two kicks one Kickstarter for two games, mm -hmm. uh, because uh basically if they hit 720 some odd thousand dollars after it's converted from yen uh 720 some odd thousand dollars there will be pc releases of both arm fantasia and penny blood and of course they blew they blew right past that uh, as of what i am looking at right now they are just short of 931,000. uh when they hit a million uh the console versions of the games are unlocked and then we're off to the races but uh, both of them look uh, like they have had a fair bit of uh, pre-production work put into them. Uh, they both look like they're maybe getting to the vertical slice stage because they showed like some mock like pr probably mock-up battle footage of both of them. And, like they they both look quite nice. They're capturing the style that you would want for a Wild Arms and Shadow Hearts successor, respectively. Uh, there's some uh, sample music. Uh, if Wheels remembers to include it, the uh, it's actually in the episode I just posted. Oh, okay, okay. Then yeah, the uh, if you listen to last week's episode, the uh, battle theme for the Wild Arms successor uh, called "When Fate Triggers You" is a, is a banger. Uh, at the very least, go listen to that. It's it's really good. Uh, but yeah, uh, I I wasn't sure how these were this Kickstarter was going to do because they announced it a few days early, like they were 
were saying like there will be a Kickstarter soonish, and then it's like, okay, I love both of these games, and they both have devoted cult followings. I don't know how much money those cult followings have or are willing to spend. <laughs> <laughs> but the answer seems to be enough because. Uh, as we speak, it has gone to $931,136. Uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's coming to PC, PS5, Xbox Series, and whatever Nintendo console is relevant circa 2025 or 26 when these are coming out. So, uh, I'm, I'm excited. I backed for uh, physical copies of both because I like both of these series. <laughs> and and I, miss, this one. Uh, I miss mid mid budget JRPGs. Yeah. I miss a good yeah. Wild Arms and Chemco RPGs cannot fill that void. <laughs> no. no. Actually, they can't fill any void. Sorry. Harsh. <laughs> um, but yeah, Ar- Arm Fantasia looks uh, very much like. If you miss you some wild arms, you're gonna need some wild arms. And wow, these characters have extremely, uh, extremely wild arms names. Protagonist Ingram Goodweather. That's oh yeah, that is yes. That's 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 a name that that's that's absolutely a drinking buddy of someone named Rudy Rough Knight. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, they both look really appealing. Uh, in terms of capturing their uh, predecessors' uh, general tone and mood. And, you know, I've been sort of, like, examining uh, what publicly available information they have in order to work out, like, how how this is going to turn out. And I, I would say that among Kickstarter games, these look like they have uh, every, every reason to assume that they will deliver on what they're promising. Um, again... Both look like they've gotten essentially all of their pre-production work basically out of the way, uh, so they'll be ready to go into production when they have like a deal signed. They mention in the Kickstarter that they have, uh, like that they that essentially the Kickstarter money is uh, partly to fund development because like it will be used for development, but it's also the Kickstarter is proving to publishers that there are people that want these games and will pay for them. Proof of interest. Uh, yeah. And so they seem to be uh, negotiating with a few different publishers. So, like, they should have plenty of resources to properly finish this. They aren't promising to port them to uh, any platforms that would be unreasonable to attempt to port them to. Uh, when you When you're starting on, like, for modern platforms like PC, PS5, Xbox series, those are all kind of the same platform. Like, not completely, obviously, but, I mean, there have never been... The actual internal design of modern consoles has never been more similar than it is now. Uh, So it's not unreasonable to get all of those out, and they're being very cautious about, like, we're going to try to get it onto whatever Nintendo platform is available at the time we'll be doing a lot of investigating you know i I suspect by 2025 or 2026 it's going to be fair to say that will be the switch to or whatever they end up calling it uh but that should make it so that they don't have to worry too much about 
being like hyper efficient. Like I feel like the reason that you're not seeing like based on how, how the games look, they look they look attractive, but they look mid budget uh, in terms of what they seem to be shooting for with the uh, trailers teaser trailers that they've shown. Uh, so I would I would suspect the reason there's no uh, announced PS4 or Xbox versions is that by the time they intend to release these, those platforms will essentially no longer be relevant. Uh, the the like release date promised on Kickstarter is like March of 2025, but I think that's like just as far out as you can put it, basically. But you know, by that point, the PS4 and, and Xbone will be 11 going on 12 years old. Uh, it's it's at that point like getting soft, going through the extra certification process will probably not be a worthwhile use of time and money. So, yeah, it it seems like they've they've got their heads on straight about how much uh, you know, they aren't overpromising, they aren't uh, like making unreasonable assumptions based on the amount of money here. Like this this seems like it will be a as smooth as development can be for a Kickstarter project game. So I'm excited. I'm very excited actually. <laughs> yeah, hopefully this turns out well. Yeah. I have every confidence. But yeah. Um and I'm probably just gonna keep listening to the to the music because if nothing else, the music will will we already know is good. Yeah. <laughs> and that is a good sign that if they're willing to actually put in for quality music at the beginning. Yeah, the uh, composer listed for let's see who's listed for Arm Fantasia. I think it's the Wild Arms one through four composer. Uh, let me double check. Okay. Uh, so yeah, I'm seeing. But yeah, like for for the record, for those unaware, the. Uh, director of Wild Arms also spent a number of years doing an uh, anime series that went for a while called Symphogear, which also had a lot of good music in it. So I think that composer has I'm also been dragged on this series because the characters were included on Heroin Fantasia or Heroin Chronicles. That makes sense. Which was an, yeah. the first game I got for Vita and the first game I sold back for Vita. That's uh, unsurprising. But yeah. yeah. Uh, if nothing else, very good music. Yes, it had good music at least. Yeah, uh, the Symphogear anime has very good music, and one of the funniest things that's ever uh, happened to me is describing. So the the Wild Arms, like uh, the the brain behind Wild Arms for the most for most of its uh, run was a guy, uh, and the guy guy behind Arm Fantasia, this guy named uh, Akifumi Kanako who, uh, before uh, Wild Arms, he was a uh, he was the designer at Nihon Telenet. Uh, his claim to fame at that time would have been a game called Tenshi no Uta. Uh, mm-hmm. Specifically, Tenshi no Uta 2 seems to have been kind of a, a relative hit. Uh, and after that, he split from Telenet and formed, uh, I guess it would have been Media Vision. But with some funding from Sony, which was used for a game called Crime Crackers, and then uh, I played that like, one too. <laughs> yep, 
Yeah. That game was developed in like five months. I would believe it. <laughs> yep. It's uh, it's a little undercooked. It's got some interesting writing going on, which, I mean, story of his life. Uh, but yeah, one yeah, of the I, funniest... I couldn't get past the point that it felt like an, a badly done version of an old id software first-person shooter. Yeah, it's it's like this and, weird thing where like people and, haven't fully... Keeping in, okay. keep in mind, I played the, orig the original Wolfenstein... The original Duke Nukem's and Blake Stone, if you remember that thing. <laughs> and Crime Crackers is a little bit below Blake Stone on the controls. <laughs> yeah, because like Crime Crackers is from that era where first-person shooters super haven't taken off in Japan, and there's like this weird uh, point where like there are Japanese developers doing takes on first-person shooters, but they're all seen through the lens of people who are more used to playing and seeing dungeon crawlers. And yes. so they are that's, still that's very, they're still very resource intensive, and they're still very clunky because they're not meant to be played fast. It's they're weird because there's there's at least one other PS1 launch era game like that called Killik the DNA Imperative, and that game sucks too. Um, but yeah, uh, Kaneko ends up. Uh, like, Wild Arms ends up being the series' biggest, uh, the company's sort of biggest hit. They, they now, I think, mostly do uh, contract work. They did, like, the Valkyria Chronicles sequels, for example. But, yeah. Uh, Kaneko spent a while as the writer on Symphogear, and from talking to the friends I have who have actually watched Symphogear when I was describing the style and, like, weird kitchen sink, uh, concepts as well as theming going on in uh, in Wild Arms too. They were like, oh yeah, that's absolutely things. A lot of the, I can totally see how that person went on to write Simple Gear. So. He's still keeping on doing his thing. So uh, excited for that. And uh, Penny Blood, the uh, director is being very specific to highlight like Shadow Hearts 2. It's going to be like Shadow Hearts 2. And I mean, that's that's the fan favorite, so I don't blame him. <laughs> but yeah, so exciting, exciting times to because, yeah, these this, this kind, there's been uh, between this and Aid and Chronicles, there's been kind of a resurgence of these like Lower budget, but with a lot of heart, uh, JRPGs. And I'm glad for it. Yeah. Uh, so we'll probably be... This podcast, will, whether it wants to or not, will be keeping track of... Uh, keeping track of those uh, games as they uh, come out. Sounds good to me. Hmm. Let's see. Um, yeah. Uh, was there any other news you wanted to cover? Oh, the PS5's price has gone up everywhere with the US. Vomit. Yeah. Uh, what, 3% or something? Forget what the actual number is. Let's see. It, it didn't sound like that much when you actually looked into it. Yeah, let me check. Um, trying to figure out what the, like, yen... Okay. 
Well, Sony's blog, of course, doesn't want to emphasize how much they've actually changed, uh, so refuses to say what the old price was alongside it. <laughs> uh, what was the... Okay, uh, it got raised about 10,000 yen, it looks like. Okay, never mind, that's about 80-something bucks. Yeah, it went from 39,980 yen to 49,478 yen for the cheaper one. Yeah. So. Or about twice the price of a Switch. Yeah. New it's, Switch, uh, of a new Switch. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, apparent apparently uh, people aren't pleased, which shouldn't really surprise a single human being. Uh, I mean, people haven't been pleased with it for like the last year and a half that they haven't been able to get one. Yeah, I mean, like it's weird that they're bothering because the amount of PS5s they ship to Japan is a rounding error at this stage. Uh, like it's it's legitimately weird to even bother pissing off japan for this because like you when you look at the sales numbers they tend to be like a few thousand a week because that's all they bother releasing there so it's like you might as well just eat the cost to avoid pissing off the japanese market that's already not super pleased with how they're being treated uh, let's see and I, I keep checking the um the magazine sales um, listings every where every week I can think of and counting up how many games on the top 30 or are not Switch. Yeah, that's always much easier than the alternative. Yeah, it's, it hasn't gotten off one hand in the last five months, I think. Uh, does not maybe, surprise me. Maybe once <laughs> it might have gotten to six and that was just because one game was counted twice because it was on PS4 and PS5. Yep. I'd imagine the PS4 version sold better in that situation, but yeah. Yeah, a couple spaces higher up. Yeah. But yeah, apparently, apparently there's been some degree of Twitter trending about uh, whether people will be able to even play FF16 in Japan because the system is so scarce and so expensive. <laughs> so, uh, good luck. But yeah. Uh... In general, it looks like they've like the the reasoning behind this is fairly obvious. Uh, they promise shareholders we will reach a certain amount of money earned off the PS5 in this fiscal year, and they aren't willing to take that hit uh, because they are presuming, and they're probably correct as much as it sucks. They are presuming that the increased price will not stop people from buying, them. which yep. I mean. Probably a safer bet than uh, when Facebook decided they were raising the price of the uh, Quest 2, but still, not a fun thing to see. Technically, uh, the price of the PS5 has not changed in the US. Uh, however, uh, they kind of don't sell the thing with, uh, unless it's bundled with a game at this stage, and they aren't doing that thing where you... Uh, you just include the game for free uh, at the same base price. When the PS5 is bundled with a game, it 
cost they increased the price consonant to that so mm-hmm. they didn't increase the price here they just uh, won't sell it to you for base price anymore <laughs> they they shrink flighted it yep so yeah that's that's where we're at uh that was probably the biggest piece of news that happened this week other than than my beloved uh btr jrpgs going back yeah um yeah it so, sucks and about in about three weeks, we get the I can't believe it's not mana game. <laughs> yeah, oh, it still has no localization announcement, does it? Nope, but I will be writing the full impression and or review for it by the end of September, I suppose. Sad face. Something at least. Hopefully yeah. it comes eventually. It seems like something someone yeah. would pick up. Yeah, I saw an update on it for about two weeks ago that was showing the changes already being made to the user interface. Mm-hmm. Um, improvements just from feedback on the demo. Mm-hmm. It's looking good. It's looking That's really good. nice. And sadly, I don't have anybody to do multiplayer with on it, so I won't be able to say how well it feels like the old Secret of Mana. Mm-hmm. Or better than the old Secret of Mana. Yeah. Well, yeah, turn- I mean, I've... If it turns out well... Future, now I've got an ad for it. Right now it's saying, oh, September 15th. Nice. It's, never mind, it's two weeks. Two weeks until I get it. Turns out well, I'm definitely going to import that one to mess around with. Mm-hmm. So hopefully. It's so good. Did you try the demo? I did. I liked it a lot. Mm-hmm. So did you beat the secret boss of the post demo? I did not. So yeah, um, if you go back to the town and talk to two people in the um, in a house on the left hand side, you can trigger a, an event with a new boss. Ooh. Yeah. Hmm. Tougher boss than the first one. Have fun. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, um, um, which questions did you guys cover last time when I wasn't here? Uh, we talked about the preservation of boutique arcade machines, since that did not seem like something you were going to have too, too much to say about. Uh, oh, yeah, so some of the questions that Fireminer put on the Discord last yeah. week. Yeah. Uh, I made a case that Sony probably should have kept the Japan studio uh, in part just uh, because they were very useful for helping various companies get their games out that would not have otherwise been able to happen due to a lack of manpower. Mm-hmm. I mean... Like, they could probably honestly use that at this stage just because the PS5 could use more games than it has. Mm-hmm. And a company like Japan Studio that does a lot of development assistance to allow companies to have more projects in the pipeline was a very useful one. But, mm-hmm. uh, it's like they forget exactly why PlayStation 2 was such a powerhouse. Yeah, yeah, they tend to. It, it wasn't is... exactly the technical specs, it was definitely the library. Yeah. I mean, this is also uh, the the entire interactive entertainment division is now under the auspices of the American branch, and that is very much reflected in their priorities in mostly boring ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. But yeah, I wanted to hit the rest of these since they're in the Discord and that's easier to lose track of. <laughs> yes, uh, that's why I have them up right now. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, so you've done like I'm guessing numbers three, four, and five. 
no, I didn't actually bring up Cheller because it was uh, I forget why I didn't bring up Cheller other than yeah, I do remember Cheller. It's uh, kind of never heard of it. <laughs> it's it's a very early controversially violent game because it was it was an arcade game about murder. <laughs> But, yeah. Okay. Basically, uh, thinking of this, if I'm thinking of the correct one. Yeah, because it, it was like a light gun kind of game, I think. Uh, oh, the Wikipedia page has a screenshot of a torture chamber. Yeah, it was very much trying to get controversial uh, for its time. The game sold poorly in the United States because arcade owners refused to purchase it. <laughs> yeah. Yep, that'll happen. Because, like, like, you look at something like Chiller, and, like, part of the problem is that, like, it's violent, but, like, there's really not anything else happening in Chiller. Like, you don't even have to have a lot happen, because, like, Chiller is relatively uh, contemporaneous with something like Splatterhouse, maybe a year or so before, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, Splatterhouse is also, for, for the time, quite violent, but, I mean, there was something happening in Splatterhouse so you could kind of get away with it. Whereas if you had a chiller cabinet, like there's really nothing happening other than just violence for the sake of violence. So it's kind of harder to sell people on it. I'm just looking through the Wikipedia and says the main challenge is seeing how fast you can kill people. Yeah. It's it's one of those things where it's like, yep, someone's pushing the envelope for like mid eighties arcade operation. And it turns out that uh like if you're, especially for something like it's an arcade game, you're spending thousands of dollars on that cabinet. Mm -hmm. You're not going to take a risky bet on that kind of investment. So, yeah, it's. I mean, like it's it's horror in the sense that it's macabre, but I wouldn't even call it particularly like trying to be scary. It's mostly just trying to be grotesque. It's Edgelord. Yeah, very, very Edgelord. Yeah. Um, let's hit these other questions as well. Is there any RPG that makes a big point out of how comforting it is when you can be confident your effort really improves you on life in real life, where you can spend dozens of hours and still not get good at something? Sometimes there are people using this reason to explain so many isekai stories nowadays that have RPG rules dictating these settings. I mean, the RPG doesn't need to build that into its fiction, because it's actually very difficult to build that into the RPG's fiction. It just needs to use that as something that can entice the player. <laughs> yeah. I, I do remember, um, actually, the very beginning of Linda Cubed, where mm -hmm. the main character's girlfriend just shuts him down, um, shuts him down with a two-by-four, actually, and <laughs> um, tells him to come see her when he's at least level three. <laughs> Yeah, I've definitely seen, like, RPGs will reference the idea of, like, needing to gain mm -hmm. levels, but it's usually just as, like, a, especially the old school ones will often use it as, like, a, hey, you need to be this strong to get through here, don't bother until you're X level. Oh, I, I will uh, say that the Sergeant Frog RPG had a lot of fun with this, just because it's, oh, okay, never mind, that was an isekai game as well. Uh, <laughs> it's just the frogs who are isekai. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it literally was. It was like they got sucked into a video mm. game. <laughs> mm. yeah. And yeah, like, like you'll you'll see that in things that are already using like an isekai premise can can use mm. that. But also, oftentimes, if they're bringing that up, it's either background detail or 
uh, comedic. Or just, or just being supremely meta. Yeah. It's, it's not usually used as a driving carrot for the player, because the player already has a driving carrot. It's watching the numbers go up. They don't need a meta context for why. Mm-hmm. And certainly you'll run into games that do the opposite and tell you that it's kind of weird how obsessed you are with the number go up. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the... Uh, The, the, like, building the satisfaction of being an RPG into the narrative, like, usually you you see games more likely to uh, criticize people's tendency to latch on to the easy uh, progression narrative that games allow. Uh, so something like F-Attack Advance uh, will uh, bring that up in criticism, but not usually... Uh, meta narratively building on the feelings that the player is usually already supposed to be getting from grinding. <laughs> uh, conversely, is power level in any shonen story made to be broken, and does it underline the rebellious attitude of the young power towards hierarchy? Uh, probably at least in some cases, but I would say in most cases it's just, you know, kids like that. I mean, adults like it too. It's true. Like, say one of I, the the oldest constants in any form of like adventure story for kids is eventually it's going to devolve into my dad can beat up your dad. <laughs> yep. I mean that describes the entire golden age of American superhero comic books. Mm-hmm. I mean, just right there, it's like my dad can beat up your dad. Yeah. Um, and even. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's how the entire DC universe operated for like twenty years. Um, Still does to some extent. Um, yeah, that, that's why they, that's why the power levels are so insanely open, all over the place for both companies that they have to end up rebooting the universe. Um, mm. Yeah, um, yeah. I'd say the best shown in comic books really do latch on to the "let's break the system" narrative, though. Yeah, let's I all, mean, let's you... all be friends, and also let's all break the system and throw it out into the garbage. Mm-hmm. People like Rebellion. Um, but One yeah, piece. I, I, yeah. Oh, definitely. One Piece uh, is like this all over. Uh, yeah. But the other thing I would, I guess, bring up about this is that uh, One, uh, not uh, Shonen stories are for children, and children are constantly uh, testing and trying to like break out of the limits that they see in themselves as children, like the things adults tell them not to do, or, you know, things they're or, told they don't know how to do. Or to be <laughs> so. the very best like no one ever was. Mm-hmm. They're constantly, you know, trying to push forward with those. So, like, yeah. the narratives mold to reflect that. But you also... Um, yes, seriously, the first two lines of the Pokemon opening theme song are basically shown in manga in a nutshell. Pretty much. But also, uh, if you if you want to look at parallels themselves, like the the uh, manga that was the most explicit about it, like characters bringing up this this little computer tells me what your number is, and that number says how strong you are. The whole point, if you actually remember what's happening in Dragon Ball, is that those numbers are completely worthless from the first time they're introduced. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
those numbers are constantly changing based on how exhausted the fighter is or whether they're making it obvious that they're trying to do something uh, to the point where characters eventually stop bothering listening to them because they're useless numbers that always, always, always are wrong. Mm -hmm. Like they are a joke because Dragon Ball, in most cases, is kind of a joke. Yeah. Even when it's being kind of serious, it's still at least half joke. <laughs> yeah. And like, like, and like the Western young adult fiction um, obsession with categorizing into subgroups. Hmm. It's yeah. like I don't care what your Hogwarts house is; it doesn't matter. Yeah. The 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 thing you run into with these is that uh, the actual problem they present is that narratively it becomes difficult to satisfy outside of bigger numbers or like even if they're not actually literal numbers like you need to you you quickly get to like world destruction powers and that's there's very little uh, escalation room yeah, power uh, creep so usually you know the stories that are intended to run for a very long time tend to uh, end up leaning heavily on the idea of these two powers interact in a very strange fashion and we work out who's more creative. Um, yeah. Luffy um, with his getting very... Very... Okay. One series that I liked um, with this mm -hmm. was actually Yu Yu Hakusho. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where a after they finished off the big tournament arc and it's like, okay, so either we go up for even bigger, badder, stronger threat or... No, we throw this kid in the, into a spirit side world where literally the rules are determined on a whim, mm. and his actual physical ability has has no point in whether or not he can succeed. Mm -hmm. It's like this but... is the way to do it. You find a way of completely changing the rules within the setting, mm. and make and make everybody think on how to succeed. Yeah, uh, or like to look at other popular examples. You've got like. Uh, One Piece, generally, like, Luffy's fights uh, that are supposed to be big, he's usually supposed to be working out, like, what's oh, a weird thing that I can do with my weird rubber body or whatever the fuck? Or any given JoJo's Bizarre Adventure arc is based <laughs> fairly heavily into doing really strange things with powers. Like, I don't think I've ever been uh, more excited about uh, someone pulling something off in a shonen fight than the last uh, fight of part four uh, where the protagonist whose power is the ability to heal things and put them back the way they were uh, mm. smears some of the antagonist's blood on a shard of glass and then well the blood has to go back to him if he uses it to try to put things back the way they were so the shard of glass embeds in the villain oh dear part I've four only, of Jojo's I've only seen I've only read the, the JoJo series that was the Journey West, basically. Uh, are you thinking yeah, the of first Stardust one Crusaders? Yeah, first... Stardust Crusaders. Yeah. And there was this one stand that traveled in between reflections. Yeah, yeah. That's, and, uh... and it got crazy because the fight was, um, the bad guy intentionally led the fight into a an area full of like beggars who were all watching the fight and he was reflecting himself off of everybody's retinas. Yeah, that's that's a very JoJo fight. Yep, and then so the hero managed to get him because he realized that 
you can still hit the stand if it's pass whenever it's passing between the two points. You just have to be able to time it right. So he took out a coin, flipped it up in the air, and literally everybody in the area was staring straight at the coin, and he could just slice straight through. <laughs> um, like, and there was no way for the stand, for the enemy stand, to avoid going straight to the coin. There was no other place for it to go. Yeah. 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 That's, yeah that's some Jojo of the battles in that series were really awesome and creative and bizarre. Hmm. Yes, they lived up to yeah. the series. Yeah, uh, and I would honestly say that uh, Part 3 often has some of the least creative ones, uh, uh, because he's still kind of getting used to what the rules for stands are. Yeah. I yeah. really need to read some more of these series just because it's just insane. Yeah, yeah, jo JoJo is also nice because uh, about once every 15 or so volumes, it just, like, it... Like they're it's split into arcs, so like especially for those first six parts, I think the first part is like four volumes, and it's you know it's fine, but it's not amazing. And then part two is like nine volumes, and that one's really good. And then from like parts three through six, they're all like fifteen or so volumes. So it's like that's a lot of manga to read, but it's not like you know it, it's a contained story, and you can pick it up and put it down without feeling like you've uh, got to commit to another, like, 100 volumes. So, even though there are another 100 volumes. It's better compartmentalized than some. Mm -hmm. yeah. But yeah, part, part four is probably my favorite JoJo part. Uh, Diamond is Unbreakable. Yeah. There, there's stuff to recommend about basically all of them. Um, speaking of which, uh, the anime adaptation of part six was picking up again in September. Uh, yeah. Um, let's hit the rest of these questions. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, will Game Freak ever be software enough to point out in a Pokemon game that a franchise about the wonders of nature and childish joy of exploration is now encourage more children to stay at home with their consoles? To be fair, there's a reason that the main games made by Game Freak have always been handheld games that you can play outside. Um, and gamifying the act of walking around and making the smartphone the window through which a lot of people see the world. That's not Game Freak, say, that's Niantic. Is, I was going to say, this sounds a bit like Pokemon Sword anyway. <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of that too. But also is bearing mean, in mind that PokeGo was Niantic, not Game Freak. Yeah, but I mean, Pokemon Sword still had lots of walking around outside and your Pokedex was technically your smartphone. Yeah. It's one of those things where it's like, you, you could, you, like, they do reference the idea of, like, how people interact with Pokemon, but I mean, I don't really think there's actually enough meat on those bones to make an entire plot about. I know, I mean, they managed to make an entire plot about, oh, that was self-aware enough to make PETA the enemy of the game. Oh, yeah, yeah, there's, that's, that's definitely what Gen 5 is, and, like, has, yeah. you know, a fair... But when, when I'm, what I'm talking about is mostly like uh, the the nature of what's going on in the games is not really equipped to like say you should go outside more when you're playing on your console because it's like I mean we put these on handhelds for a reason there's not really much else we can do <laughs> mm -hmm. like the the only uh, console. Uh, 
Pokemon games are the Switch ones, which, again, can be played in handheld mode. And yeah. uh, the GameCube ones made by Genius Sonority, which is notably not Game Freak. It's Heartbeat, mostly. <laughs> That's what they did after Dragon Quest Seven. They made mediocre GameCube Pokemon games. <laughs> yeah. Um, those would be it's just one of those things like I'm not sure that there's uh, that there's much to really be said in the context of a game narrative about uh, whether you're playing Pokemon at home or outside and uh, yeah they, they already bring up the like People interact with Pokemon in very strange, uh, sometimes unhealthy ways in terms of like statifying and, uh, you know, failing to interact with them like the animals that they're basically supposed to be. Uh, that's that's mm. definitely a recurrent theme throughout the Pokemon franchise. So, uh, in that sense, I don't know that there's much new ground to explore by bringing up specifically like the uh, window of the smartphone uh, context. But I could maybe see like the background character or background plot of a future one maybe addressing the idea of someone uh, failing to take in the uh, you know natural wonder that's supposed to come from the world of Pokemon because they're too busy like trying to you know study it and uh, gamify it. That's I say that that would like describe several stuff. villains from the movies. Yep. Uh, yeah, so yes and no. Could could see both of those showing up to some greater or lesser extent. But, where are we? Uh, I want to quickly hit uh, probably one or two questions from the big list. I mean, um, there's a couple of questions on the big list that I don't think anyone else could answer, so I might as well right now. Yeah, what was the number on those so I can remember to mark them down? 75 and 76. Okay. Chair uh, of Japanese history. Season the last number of novels, movies, video games, I've ever said that. So, again, speaking of feudal Japan, lots of speaking ofs in the section. Uh, <laughs> besides everything during and after the Sengoku period up to the Taisho era, which period in Japanese history sees the most number of novels, movies, video games, etc. set in it? Now, please, first of all, be aware that you just described what's basically a 400-year period of a 1,000-year history of the country. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there... Obviously, there is going to be a lot set in that time period because it includes the single most tumultuous period in the game's... Not games, in the country's history, and also the single longest government in its history. Yeah. Um, it's also the most recent, like, 500 years. <laughs> yes, it's also better documented than a lot of the stuff that came before it. Mm -hmm. um, well, for whatever reason, the uh, the two shogun periods before the, the massive Sengoku era weren't that interesting, despite, you know, uh, Mongolian invasion. Um, mm -hmm. So, and before that, you're looking at the Heian period, the Asuka period, and the entire mythic period before that. You're and, basically uh, making it up as you go along for a lot of that. Yeah, so there's not a lot of 
good sources for things in that those periods, and most of it is mythology. So you end up with things like God Wars. Mm-hmm. It's definitely based off of prehistoric Japan mm-hmm. or a mythic mythic history Japan. Um, yeah. And then you've got games like Oreshka One and Two, which are definitely Heian period. Mm-hmm. So about the eleventh century uh, in Japan. Yeah, and hey, um, there's a beloved classic video game Heian Kyo Alien. <laughs> Yeah, so you will find you will find some games set in the Heian period just because it is a visually distinct period of the nation's history, and it has the Tale of Genji and Tale mm-hmm. of Heike uh, books, which at least give us some image of what things should look like. Yeah, those used to be fairly common for video games as well, things like Genji and yeah. Heike clans. So, yeah, you will see, I mean, most of what you will see from the pre-Sengoku period for media in this country will be based on either the Tale of Genji or the Tale of Heike, <laughs> which are not the same kinds of book, oddly enough. Since <laughs> Tale of Genji the is a... From that <laughs> yeah, like, Tale of Genji is a courtly romance in the in most different meanings of the word romance, <laughs> and it's a novel. <laughs> and Tale of Heike is basically a written compilation of an oral history of the losing side of a civil war. <laughs> so the the two are very different in structure, style, tone, and pos- potential levels of historicity. Mm-hmm. Hey, Tale of Heike gives us Tomoe Gozen, who was a... Uh, was um, What's her name? The Kung Fu girl in Persona Chie's 4. Persona, yeah. yeah, Chie's Persona. So. Which also, um, uh, tying into that mythic concept, I think some of the... Uh, there, there's, there's some mythic uh, things attributed to, to Tomoe Gozan. Not exactly, um, but... I mean, she is one of the few attested um, onabushi, like female mm-hmm. warrior samurai yeah. in history. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that part, and so there's a huge argument over whether or not she really existed. Probably mm-hmm. she did. Honestly, Probably there were Onabushi, they just weren't comment on as much. Um, but, as I recall, like, the way she went out was probably the most badass thing you could imagine. Because mm-hmm. it was like her, her husband, and her husband's warriors were like, blockaded, and it was definitely, they were all about to get killed by the enemy, and the enemy offered, um, told them that she could go free because she was a woman. Hmm. And her husband just said, "Please go live." And so she um, she put her horse into a gallop, went full speed, and decapitated two of the enemy soldiers or enemy oh. warriors on the way out. <laughs> Might as well. Yes, and then she retired to a mountain, became a nun for the rest of her life, because <laughs> that happened a lot in those stories. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Um, what else can I think of? So, yeah, I mean, if you look at Japanese history, those two are going to be your main sources for anything in the Heian period. The um, the Kojiki and Nihon Shoke are, um, are going to be the, uh, or whatever it was, are going to be the main sources for anything mythic because those are the only compilations of mythology. Mm. Um, the Edo period has just lots of really random stuff in Kabuki and everything. Mm. Plus, plus the films of Akira Kurosawa. Naturally. Yeah. 
And plus, um, early early 19th century, you had the Jiraiya stories. Which are, which between that and Kabuki are the sources for everything ninja in media. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, so that, that about covers it for almost the entirety of Japanese history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, there's two different shogun periods in between Heian and Sengoku, which nobody really pays attention to because they were largely boring. Um, <laughs> Not I mean, the parts that weren't boring are the parts that ended up leading to a 150-year period of warlordism and civil war. We love so. the warring states here, don't we? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's how they got so many different video games out of that one period. Uh, a lot of options, a lot of options. And of course, I mean, Oda Nobunaga. Yeah. Uh, always your go-to historical villain. Yeah. Or hero, war, both. Yeah, you burn down one Buddhist uh, monastery and things go south for you in the historical realm. <laughs> Only one? Joke. No, I, I remember. <laughs> I remember reading a an article that was talking about how um, famous historical figures often have like things that the artists focus on so that you can immediately recognize who they are. Mm-hmm. Like George Washington's haircut is very distinctive. Yeah. So. Yeah. No matter what medium or what style the cartoon is, you can always recognize like certain U.S. presidents by the I mean, hairstyle or hats or whatever. Yeah. And it was commenting about, yeah, Oda Nobunaga. His main ID traits are his villainous goatee, his stylish black armor, and the fact that somewhere in the background there is probably a castle or temple or something burning to the ground. Yep. Yep. Gets to live in infamy forever. Oh, he did. I mean, it's like he—he's an infamous hero of the country. It's, it's not yes, even like he's um, typically a villain half the time. He, he very much gets to be whatever the story needs him to be. <laughs> yeah. So, which is a really interesting way to manage things, but also very Japanese. Mm-hmm. But actually, um, which actually is a good way of approaching the next section as well, or the next question. Mm-hmm. So, uh, like you're ready to go ahead and... <laughs> yeah, might as well. So, uh, keeping in mind that the Japanese don't mind at all if their villain slash hero is wonderfully ambiguous on the morality. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of, I like what they did to Lucifer and, and Shimigami Tensei Five, but it doesn't feel like Atlas will always position, or doesn't it feel like Atlas will always position the Japanese gods as neutral good or at least neutral neutral? Um, I think this question comes from a in- misunderstanding of how pantheons react um, act at times. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> just because, if you look at Japanese mythology, you don't find a lot of evil deities. Mm-hmm. You'll find completely, uh, what's the right word here, um, ambivalent deities, like they don't care, but you don't find a lot of deities that are actively out to get people. I mean, I can count on one hand the number of Japanese deities that I would consider to be actually evil, and several of which are, are actually listed as chaotic dark in um, Megaten games. 
but they're both rare, and at least three of them are actually considered dragons. So, is that? So, um, oh, let's go a little field of it first. Um, Dave, do you know the term Titanomachy? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, to, for, for the audience, Titanomachy is basically in a lot of mythologies, you will have a situation where the current or primary set of deities have to fight a major existential threat, and this could be just simply the force of nature itself, or it could be an, a foreign pantheon that they have to face off against. Some, some other extant pantheon of similar... Yeah. So, I mean, it varies depending on the mythology, so like and I mean, Titanomachy comes from the Greek word that basically means the clash of the titans, whereas the Olympian gods had to fight their older siblings, the titans, and to triumph and become rulers of the world. Hmm. And so the titans probably were, at least some of them, um, pre-existing or pre-Hellenic deities. Hmm. But after that, there was also the Gigantomachy, the war against the giants, which was definitely gods versus nature because hmm. nature was pissed off at them. Literally. Not hmm. figuratively. Gaia herself was pissed off at the Olympians. <laughs> yeah. Generally not a huge fan of the, of the destruction of all that's happened there. <laughs> yep. But this is kind of a standard thing for a lot of pantheons. Um, it could be smaller and personal, like the Egyptian Osiris versus Set situation. Hmm. Um, it could be very much more... Um, elemental like the Aesir versus the Jotnar in Norse mythology. Um, it could be hilariously um, political like um, in uh, Hindi mythology you had the Devas um, defeating the Ashura and then on the other side of the Zagros Mountains you, in the Farsi mythology you had the noble Asura defeating the Deva. Mm -hmm. So that was fun. Um, so in Japanese mythology, you have a sort of Titanomachy, where you have the gods of heaven with Amaterasu leading them against the gods of the land with um, Okuninushi leading them. But <laughs> this is very much more of just a dispute over territory and authority. It wasn't anywhere near what you saw in Greek mythology or the Norse mythology or the Indo-Iranian mythologies because once it was all said and done the two two sets of deities actually just sat down and got along with each other at the end hmm. um, it was you can imagine it as like the Yamato Cult of the Sun slowly conquering its way across the island chain and absorbing all of its sister cultures from the Kofun period and their personal cult deities into the main mythology. <laughs> and so there are stories about fights between the gods and fights for territory and authority. And in the end, Amaterasu is queen over everything. Hmm. And most of the deities that fought against her accepted this, and they are considered regular deities in Japan. 
think you have a split between Amatsugami, which are heaven deities, and Kunitsugami, which are the um, earth deities, but otherwise there isn't much of anything. Hmm. Um, there are a few monster deities, like um, um, Chimokaren, who was a storm god. It was basically an eyeball with tentacles. How lovely. It's buried under a huge rock in Mie Prefecture. It is, um, <laughs> it's Megaton. It's Megaton artwork is the basis for the abscesses in, in Shimigami Tensei Five. Um. Those things. When I first saw one on the map, I was like, "Oh, Ichimokuren! Oh, it's not Ichimokuren! Oh, seriously, dudes!" Eh. <laughs> um. So, which leads me to the one major example against um, opposite this. In Megaton. Mm -hmm. um, did you play um, Devil Summoner Rido versus the Soulless Army? I played some of it, but it's been like 15 years. <laughs> yeah. The driving conflict of that game was it, on the mortal side, it was a battle of authority between the Army and the Navy in pre World War II Japan, mm -hmm. which was reflective of um, some of the politics of the late Taisho, early Showa period. But on the on the metaphysical level, the army is being backed by the Kunitsugami, the the deities of the land. And so they all show up as bosses in that game. They are actively mm. actively influencing um politics and directly controlling the the main general of Japan to basically take back authority over the country from Am Amaterasu's group. So that is the one time where I would definitely say that the Japanese gods are not positioned as neutral good or neutral neutral. <laughs> <laughs> so makes sense given the time. Yeah, but also it does also feature one of the few truly evil deities in, ja in Japan as a boss, hmm. um, Mishigushi-sama, uh, Mishigushi hmm. White Snake. Uh, I'm not I'm quite sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, this is one of the few Japanese deities that is always listed as evil god for type. Hmm. Um, I'm not quite sure why. Um, I haven't found out a lot about him except that he appears to have been a harvest or fertility deity hmm. of the darkly chthonic type. Hmm. As in the, the um, there's a fam there's a drought there's a famine the har harvest has failed again we need to sacrifice it. somebody to make it better type he's, he's being demanding again yeah and um, and basically he, he seems to be like okay if I needed to for example reinvent the story Shadow over Innsmouth for a Japanese farming community. This is the deity I would go with instead of Dagon. That kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's a boss in that game. He's a regular demon mob in several other games, including Soul Hackers. Hmm. Um, which is where I first saw him, I think. After have to wheels to find out if, we, if he shows up in Soul Hackers, too. I'll let you know. Yeah, I mean, his, he's also known as the White Snake. 
And um, so he, I mean, he's usually shown um, in the, or in the Soul Hacker's art, he did have arms and legs, but his body was basically somewhere between a snake and an earthworm in design. Hmm. Yeah. Other than that, um, the original Shin Megami Tensei, Goto Doji. Hmm. Who is a tutelary deity of Japan, a warrior spirit, impersonating the prime minister, inflaming tensions, and literally inviting the U.S. to nuke the city <laughs> um, ah, through, that's quite through, a through his aggressions and the fact that he declared martial law over the half the city um, in order to position the eastern pantheons better for the upcoming Gata Damarong. Um, so in his case, he did have the best future of Japan at heart. It just did not lead to a happy ending for half of Japan. Yeah, I think people might have might have taken issue with those ideas. Yeah. So he was definitely a neutral, neutral at best. <laughs> Very dark neutral. <laughs> yeah. Other than that, I can't think of any good examples where a Japanese deity was in the, was really negative in hmm. one of these games. So, again, that's mainly that's kind of reflective on how the Japanese viewed their home deities for the most hmm. part, and um, how there was a distinct lack of filtering through Judeo-Christian um, morality for a lot of these. Mm. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a dark lord demiurge of everything that's evil. Mm. Uh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's probably a good place to leave off because my brain is dying. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That means that it's time to hear about princesses and pizza parlors. Oh, oh give me a moment to catch my breath. Whew. <laughs> uh, unless I, unless you'd like to introduce it, I haven't talked too much. <laughs> well, what can I say other than that? Uh, if you are sick of listening to uh, streamers play uh, tabletop games and make uh, very inexplicable bad choices, you can uh, maybe uh, read about it from people who are young enough that from characters that are young enough that they have an excuse. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, so, uh, okay. Okay, so, so yeah, so Princesses of the Pizza Parlor by Michael Yadimizu, available on Kindle and Kindle Unlimited, and a cup. And if you like Dead Tree compilations, we have paperbacks on Amazon as well. Um, yeah, what Dave said. If you like, if you like action play podcasts and wouldn't mind trying it in written format, then you can live through some vicariously awful personal decisions and dice rolls and hmm. see how things turn out. Yeah. And literal dice rolls in a couple of cases, because if you ever see a number given, I actually rolled something to determine what that was going to be. Hmm. In a couple of cases, this derailed large sections of plot going forward. <laughs> So, but yeah, that's the way the D20 tumbles. As long as you're able to roll with it. 
Um, let's see. So yeah, uh, yeah, on Amazon, Michael Yari Mizu. Yeah. So, give it a look. Give it a read. Um, Wales, you got anything to plug? Uh, you can catch the Sunday nights for Sunday Night Shenanigans, focused on multiplayer games. This week, it's probably going to be Ninja Turtles related. Mm. Um, also, we're doing Adventures in Platforming again, we're doing like a full playthrough of the first Klonoa game in the recently released uh, collection. Yeah. Uh, which may happen, uh, well, hopefully will happen on our normal recording night for this. Yeah, barring the unforeseen. Yes. And uh, you, can catch, you can catch us on twitch.tv slash, you can catch all of this on twitch.tv slash askwheels, including this very podcast. Usually Wednesdays around midnight. EST. That's it. <laughs> Yep, and if you would like to ask us questions like your friend Fireminer did, uh, you can ask them in the Discord, or you can ask them in the chat on uh, Wheels's, uh, on, uh, on AskWheels, twitch.tv slash AskWheels, during the show. Didn't get any uh, mid-show questions this week, but that's always an option. But if you just want to ask us questions, you can do it in the comments section. Not many people do that anymore, but it is an option. Or you can do the you can ask them in the Discord if you haven't if you aren't uh, in the RP Gamer Discord you just need to go to the uh, go to rpgamer.com and click the community tab and you'll get an invite there. It's a lovely community whether you want to ask us questions or not, but we do always appreciate it. By so we do. you know, drop those in the podcast section. Uh, otherwise, uh, I think mm. that about wraps us up. So see ya, Space Cowboys. See ya. Cute.